Welcome to Getting Work to Work, a weekly podcast that explores the creative and curious world of work through monologues and conversations with creative entrepreneurs, storytellers, and changemakers. I always love conversations where I can throw away my list of questions and listen deeply. Lydia Lee is a work reinvention strategist who is curious about how work can work for you. In this conversation, she shares her journey from breakdown to breakthrough and how she created a life that she is proud of and impactful for others. She talks about the role of disruption in her schedule, why moving to another country forced her out of her comfort zone, why you need the right people in your life to tell your dreams to, and why you don't need to make massive moves, but can make change a project. Grab your notebook because Lydia brings all her wisdom to getting work to work. Show notes and links to all the good stuff mentioned in this episode can be found at gwtw.co slash 631. Lydia, welcome to Getting Work to Work. It's going to be a great time talking with you today. Yes, and happy morning from Bali, one day ahead of you in the future. It's looking good. Okay, I'm glad to know that because whenever I talk to people that are in the future, I always want to know, how's it looking? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good. Well, one of the things that I love asking people is just about curiosity. So for you living in Bali with chickens and roosters and street dogs, what what gets your curiosity tank full? Well, the great thing about, you know, having a bit of an con- unconventional lifestyle where, you know, Bali is a home base, but I have sort of multiple places I deem a home base. You know, Vancouver is where I'm from originally, and I was born in Malaysia, in Penang, uh, when I was a little kid. So these are kind of the three places I'm about uh, or around and about every single year. Um, but usually pre-pandemic and now getting back to the usual ritual of traveling, uh, I, I like to pick a wild card. Um, country or a wild court city to travel to every year. Um, I find that actually I'm someone that needs a little bit of disruption in my schedule because I get really, um, I think, you know, as we all do, right, in our own schedules and, and, and rhythms of life, it can be easy to kind of be on a bit of autopilot. So even though I live a, a, a pretty unconventional life, that can also be its own rhythm, right? And that, right. that's normalized in my day to day. So the way that I feed my curiosity is really changing scenes more mm-hmm. often, which allows me to kind of take a pause sometimes. So when I move to a new country, I have to figure out where the grocery store is, make new friends. I can't just get too comfy with people I know and have <laughs> the same damn conversations all the time. I have to learn a new language, right? Which again, um, sparks a different part of my brain. You know, right. I wish I learned languages when I was a child. That's more malleable brain, but it forces you to do a lot of things out of the, you know, comfort zone of your day to day, right? Which is challenging, but also I think it helps me to be more open to trying new things. So if I'm in Mexico, for example, living there for six months, I sometimes pick up a new hobby because you do feel like that when you're in a bit of a holiday mode, right? We're kind of our best selves, aren't we? When we're on (laughs) holiday, we're like, yes, I'm adventurous. Yes, I want to talk to new people. Uh, But having that a part of a longer, right, part of uh, some choices that I make every single year, I think that's really helped me shape um how I'm curious you know what what helps me to be more curious and also setting the environment for change right which yeah. is um just helping me really sort of sometimes let go of certain things that are no longer working because again if you're an autopilot you sort of don't think about your day-to-day stuff until you have to right, right. so travel's been uh, a really key tool that I use to help my curiosity keep 
keep brewing before mm-hmm. it starts to become stagnant. Yeah. I love so much the awareness that you have about disruption in your life. Mm. At what point did you learn that you needed disruption? Because a lot of people don't want disruption. No, we don't do well in uncertainty. I mean, right? right? We fit, we saw that uh, it, it, during the pandemic. People don't like not knowing right. what's going to happen, which is very normal and natural. Um, and, you know, my cultural background, as I mentioned, my family's from Malaysia. Um, you know, the Asian mentality, especially immigra- immigration, right, where we immigrated and the immigrant mentality mm-hmm. uh, of the, fa- the family values and lessons I've learned is always to play it safe, to be honest, right? It's mm-hmm. like we're lucky to get to a country to have more opportunity, um, do what you need to do, work harder than someone else and get to where you need to go and get in line. You know, don't disrupt too much because that's just how, right? I, my mother has taught me that's how she's had to gain a life in Canada, right? And so I didn't, I'm not someone that was actually very good with disruption as I was um, in my 20s, for example, right? And I wish I could say I had like a very transformative moment where I w- woke up and said, you know what, I'm going to live life for me and yeah. I'm going to do whatever it takes. It wasn't like that at all. I did get in line. You know, I did do everything that you're supposed to do on paper to get to a version of success, right? That we're supposed to get to. Uh, and it wasn't until I, I had a really major health scare. Mm-hmm. My sort of breakdown that became a bit of a breakthrough was um, I was 28 years old at the time. I was working for one of the biggest um, international educational schools in Canada doing business development. Um, and I hadn't taken a holiday for three years, climbing the corporate ladder and about to be promoted. And I was in Russia, actually, for a conference for with the Embassy of Canada, as you do. Um, and I've been on the road for about two months at that point doing a trade mission in Ukraine and Turkey and Russia. And I had a mental breakdown in a hotel room from exhaustion, from burnout, uh, from probably a bit of jet lag as well, but particularly working an average of about 65 hours a week for the last three years, that took a toll on my body, you know, that even though my brain kept going, we can keep going. This is what you do to make something of yourself. As they say, the the body keeps the score, right? Um, It was like, no, you're going down. And so I developed for three days, temporary agoraphobia in the hotel room. That's my my mental health and my physical body. That's the the symptom it came up with to get me stuck in a room. Uh, It was the scariest thing that's ever happened to me because I was in a foreign country with no help and support. Uh, But it was the very thing that woke me up from my slumber, right? My my routine, as we talked about rituals. Um, and and that forced me to take a, a small sab- a medical sabbatical to figure out what was happening because I thought something was wrong with me. But right. it was purely stress. And I wasn't taking care of myself working those many hours. And so that moment was the catalyst for change for me. You know, it, was, it, it had to be forced in a way to do it. Uh, and that that helped me to think about what was causing, what was the root of it causing this sort of lifestyle that was happening to me, right? And so thankfully I worked with a great therapist who didn't shove a bunch of pills down my throat, you know, instead (laughs) helped me to ask some of the important questions, right? Decisions I was making in my life, consciously or unconsciously, that was leading to that burnout, right? And my job certainly was one of the biggest factors that contributed to uh, that experience. Wow. I mean, it's one thing to grab your attention right out of the gate with like a major health scare. But then how do you keep that progress going and not falling back on those bad behaviors? Mm. 
Well, as I said, you know, having someone in your corner to help you and ask you the tough questions is important. The same therapist I worked with almost 10 years ago is the exact same therapist I still work with today. Right. And even though I'm not having burnouts uh, as often as I did back in the day, it's that mental hygiene. I think that's really important that we forget about, you know, when we're busy chasing whatever, you know, definition of happiness and success that we have. Right. And now that I know what I know, you know, the mental health is such an important part of um, carving out a good life. You know, without the mental health, it's really hard to decide right? What's right and healthy for you? Because there's a lot of noise going out there in the world of what you, what people want you to have, what people think is, uh, you know, the version of happiness and success, and it can be easily swayed, right? To get there. Um, the other part was also enrolling the right people in my life to talk to about this transition. Uh, what I discovered was never tell uh, an Asian mother, you're about to give up a six-figure job and a pension plan and, a, you know, uh, and a mortgage uh, right. because that's the wrong person to tell your dreams to. Not because she's not supportive, but she's in a right a different mindset yeah. of security. You know, her language of love is always warning me about horrible things that happened to me. Anyone listening who has an Asian mother gets what I'm saying. It's They're not called tiger moms for no reason. <laughs> You know, it's part and parcel of the cultural uh, way of way of loving. Um, And so being able to decide who are these people that were going to help cheerlead my dream and not think I am crazy for wanting a different life or giving up a sure thing, because that's what I kept hearing. It's like, oh, no, no, this is just an episode. Everyone feels this way. You know, it's a a hump you have to get over. The last thing you want to do is give up such a large opportunity, which could change your life. And don't think anything more than that, right? So I had to speak to people who either have gone through what I've gone through that could relate and help me, or believe in a vision of life that isn't a conventional theory, right? And and allow and and and, and talk to them more about uh, you know this common or similar dream that doesn't make me feel bad about myself. So I had to curate uh, almost a council, a small, very small council of people, including therapists, coaches, friends, peers, right, that believe in similar things, and that really helped me stay the course mm-hmm. because you know it normalizes what I'm trying to do rather than the naysayers that could right be saying, oh no no no, that's just an episode, that's just a moment in time, right? right. That that was really helpful for me to um, be able to quit my job nine months later and start you know my my first consulting business. Then that's awesome. And what I love about that, too, that message of curating a group of people who believe in your future vision, uh, I can't think of a better description of why, when we tell our dreams to the wrong people, uh, they they tell us that it's not right, because we, in, in essence, curate the people who want to keep us in our positions as we are, uh, versus the people who want us to become who we could be. Mm. And one of the big lessons I learned, because, you know, I, when I did tell my mother what was going on and she was like, oh, my God, what have you done? You know, what are you doing? She still called me for many years, even till I moved to Bali. You know, she um, sort of thought this was a phase, you know, and why am I not coming home at this point? Right. Um, and I used to get a little bit angry. Right. You get a bit ragey of like, why are you why are you raining on my parade? You know, I'm doing something big. I'm already uncertain and a little scared. And this isn't helpful you know, in supporting me. But that wasn't actually, it was the wrong way of looking at it because I think what, I, what I've what i learned is that 
when you do something, right, especially to the where the people close to you are witnessing it, like my mom, right, who has her own insecurities, her own fears, her own um, template for how she made it in Canada as an immigrant. That's the truth she holds on to. It's not my truth, mm-hmm. right? It, it's, it's a truth she passed on to me and that no longer needs to be my truth as I have a separate identity and opportunity and timeline as my mother. Yeah. But it's, it's very natural, isn't it? When someone does something that triggers our own fears for ourselves or for the people we love, we want to project that unconsciously sometimes because we're almost saying, wait, 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 if you do, if my daughter, right, that's what she's thinking, if my daughter does something completely off the books about what I've taught her to do or what I've taught myself how to survive in this country, I'm worried for her well-being. And also, I'm questioning my own decisions <laughs> about whether or not, why, why did I stay at one job for 35 years to get the pension while she's barely stayed three, right? So it makes you think, you know, made her think a lot about her choices and decisions, not right or wrong, but they're different, right? But it does sometimes trigger this, like, I have to say something to defend my position also, right. because then I get to be okay with the decisions that I made, you know, and I didn't really realize that projection was for herself rather than it was at me because it feels like it's at me, right? Yeah, <laughs> when she's doing that. So it was an interesting dance, if you will, of like what I allowed in, you know, to my reality, but also mm-hmm. respecting that people you love will warn you and do these things. It's not personal. And most of it is a projection of their own insecurity, not particularly directed in my plans and something that I have to agree with either. Right. Yeah. Ooh, I love that. I love that a lot because uh, when we make big changes, we can't always just kick the people that love us to the curb and be like, bye, I'm never going to see you again. Yeah, that's right. We have to learn to communicate in ways that we can still feel good about where we're going, right? But Mm -hmm. kind of have boundaries, right? About what we do talk about with the people that can't support us fully just yet, you know, and even just thanking them and appreciating them for their concern. Sometimes that allows them to at least know they've been listened to. And that's right. That's about as far as I would take it for advice or right. uh, Talking of my dreams to that person, particularly. Oh, I love that. What's interesting too, Lydia, is is it's such a healthy way of approaching uncertainty and in a way where you're bringing people in that can understand so that you can have those moments of doubt with them as opposed to mm-hmm. the moments of doubt with people who don't understand saying, see, I told you so. Mm. That's the worst to hear, isn't it? When you're it already in, lim- in limbo yes. and you know, you're, you're not as brave as you want to be. And someone goes, I told you so. See, see mm-hmm. what happened. You know, it's a, it's a shame thing, isn't it? And, and shame makes us um, shut down, right? Mm-hmm. makes us feel bad about ourselves and there's no way forward with shame, mm-hmm. you know? So you're so right that, that um, that's such an important thing, you know, to keep our bravery because we need other people to help us be brave in mm-hmm. the beginning of time, you know? And so, yeah linking ourselves to people who have either done what we've done and can show us the way, right? Or be inspired by people who've made these positions that are aligned with the values that you have. That's the other part too. Who are the people I'm looking up to that actually represent the values that I am? Because there's a lot of successful people out there. Sometimes they get to a version of success where I don't want to make take that approach, you know? <laughs> um, and so it is important for me to, uh, even these days, you know, I'll 
subscribe to a newsletter or get, get on a podcast show, not because I can, but because the things that they believe in are similar to what I believe in. And that makes that connection or relationship or that learning mm -hmm. of that person so much more genuine and authentic to the way that I want to proceed in mm -hmm. my life. I love that. So at what point, Lydia, did Bali enter the picture? Because, I mean, that seems so random from Vancouver, Canada. Well, yeah, it was a bit of a random uh, thing, but also not really because I had intended to uh, experiment with living abroad, right? So um, I, as I mentioned, you know, I'm not a big risk taker. I came from a family that didn't take a lot of risks. And so in the beginning of time to me, and still is important to me to take calculated risks. I'm not a, what I call a jump off a cliff and hope the parachute opens kind of person. <laughs> you know, I'm not just not that person. Uh, but I've sort of decided to create ways that I can do different things that are scary without feeling like I'm sacrificing everything ever know, right? So when I started my first consulting business, right, this is way before Screw the Cubicle, because Screw the Cubicle started as a blog, never intended to monetize, never intended to do anything with that. Funny how life is, right? And so when I had my first inaugural consulting business in the same industry that I left, because um, that was the easiest work for me to do, I was thinking, well, since my clients are in China and other parts of Asia and Europe, I don't actually need to be here in Vancouver. And I wonder what it would feel like, you know, at the time there wasn't Zoom, there was Skype. Right. I knew that people were okay speaking to me on Skype and they kind of just need a way to contact me and there's email and things like that. As long as I can do some calls, I'm in the clear. So I decided, what would it feel like to take six months off, to, not off, but to go abroad and live and work? Would that bring me more happiness? You know, Vancouver was a very expensive and still is a very expensive city to live in for a startup. You know, I wasn't I was self-funded. So everything was sort of, you know, very tight for me in the first year of business. Could I have a bit more disposable income if I decide to live in a more affordable place and continue earning the income I earned, right? And so I didn't actually know the answer to that because you don't really know what you know until you do it. And so the only people that I sort of knew doing the whole digital nomad thing at the time were people like programmers and web designers, very techie guys and girls. I wasn't that person. So I didn't really know if I could do it as a consultant. I didn't know anyone, right? And so I told myself that I was going to take this experiment, right? Feed my curiosity by making it a project, right? It's not a forever thing. If I hate it within three months time, I can fly right back. No, no skin off my back, right? But I'm going to give myself this boundary of time that I'm going to go all in and allow myself to live this interesting fantasy of what it would feel like, you know, to have a different lifestyle and let myself play in the sandbox for just a little bit without this escape plan right away, you know, so I could immerse in it for three to six months. And then I said, if I hate it, I'll go, no problem, right? And that's what I needed to kind of almost tell my brain before it started to have a panic attack and go, holy crap, you're moving, you're gonna, what, you know, you're, you're away, you'll never have friends, you know, I'll start to have these what ifs, right? But because there's a boundary of time, you know, and I allowed myself to check out if I wanted to, 
it, you know, it helped me to go for it, right. And go for it fully instead of one foot in one foot out. And that decision, you know, first I went to Cambodia and I didn't have any plans. It was just book one way ticket and see what happens, which was again, a very different way of operating for me, but I wanted to trial this new behavior, right. Mm -hmm. And see what happens. And, and, and I was uh, creating my first course at the time with my friend who was a therapist in Vancouver and we had been created a course ever. So we needed time to work on this. And I remember going on Facebook and kind of crowdsourcing. Does anyone know a place in Southeast Asia that has really good food, good yoga, is quiet, has a co-working space, has decent internet um, that I, you know, you would recommend? And someone mentioned Ubud, Bali, which I've never heard of at the time. And then I said, okay, I'll book a ticket there. And two <laughs> days later from Cambodia, I came to Bali and Long story short, you know, it be, it it ticked the boxes for a lot of things I needed mm -hmm. in a community, and you know, almost a decade later, I'm still here. Wow, ten years. Ten years. I mean, there's there's so many things that you just said that I'm like unwrapping there, like a present. Because first, it's like when you said that you treated change as a project as opposed mm. to like a forever thing. Like that's how I heard that is that yes. three to you can do anything for three to six months essentially is what you said in my ears. Yeah, I mean, I still take on that mentality, like in my business or something I'm doing different with you know my life, for example. Like thirty days is about minimum. I would do something. I do think going sixty or ninety days is a really fair gives it a fair chance. Yeah. to be something right i mean there is a whole scientific thing around habits right habit change in 90 days real you know one change will be a lot more permanent if done consistently right mm -hmm. for 90 days and i think um we we for, we've forgotten about exploration and experimentation as adults you know i think a lot about um you know, I, I know you used to teach in schools and things like that. When we used to be students, for example, it was very normal to do things like internships, right. you know, a try things on for size. Mm -hmm. Maybe you do this for a summer internship and then you decide not to do that and go somewhere else. No one called you a fool. They just called you <laughs> a young person right. trying to figure things out. Right. Um, but as an adult, we're sort of taught like you have to know. You have to know your purpose. You have to know your vocation. You have to know exactly what you're meant to do. And that's not true. We're sure we look like adults. We're big people, right? <laughs> we're small people. I always like to say we're still small people in big people clothes, right? Yes. Um, but we have the same desires or, you know, things that we're looking for as adults. We do look for adventure. We look for contrast. We look for um change, you know, to grow as a human. But I think how we've been doing it in traditional society has been about, you know, you choose one thing and you better have chose the right thing till you're 65. And then maybe you're lucky enough to find the right thing. And then you retire and then you enjoy your life, right? It's a sort yeah. of very paint by numbers approach to life, right? And so I, I, I see that a lot, even in my first business working with kids, right? That I used to do university pathway programs. That was my stint. And, you know, helping them choose a path for where they want to go in university, what the day, you know, it wasn't a quick and dirty thing. It was a bit of like, let's try that for a summer camp. Oh, you kind of like robotics. Let's put you into this program. See if you like it. Yeah. Right. And I, I think as adults, we need these internships, whatever, you know, uh, you have to make them up obviously for yourself, but whether it's a small internship when it comes to work, for example, right. I put my clients on internships because they need it. If they've been, 
thinking about changing careers, thinking about using the skill for a different purpose. Well, we can't think forever till the cows come home because that's just up in our brain. We need to do something to try on that coat for size and see if it fits in a small sliver of an experience. That's going to get you closer to feeling good about making that decision than overthinking it and brewing around it in a, in a safe zone that doesn't have any action. Yeah. Ooh. I love this insight into what you do now with Screw the Cubicle, because like as a work reinvention strategist, telling someone that they have to take chances, like try that on, try it out, give it a shot, get out of your head, actually do something so that you can see whether it's a fit or not. That's so powerful. And I think there is something there that we all need to hear. It was something I needed to do. You know, when I first left my job, it was an easy transition because I stayed in the industry mm -hmm. that I was already at. That was sort of easy. But what I realized after six months of having that consulting business is that, yes, it paid the bills. I got to, you know, work in my underpants. That was great. You know, I felt like a boss, <laughs> right? Like I didn't have to go to meetings. But something was kind of missing for me. And I think for, for someone like me, I'm designed to... What, to, to get me up in the morning, I need to have the motivation of meaning and that I'm, I'm making an impact, right? Not just paying the bills. Mm -hmm. uh, that was sort of one step great for me to leave my job and do it on my own. I can prove that to myself, but I need it to feel aligned with the thing I'm doing in the sense of that um, I believed in the thing I was doing. And, and after a while, I didn't no longer believe in exactly the thing I was doing or that there was more to what I should be doing. So screw the cubicle, for example, became a, a place for me to document that identity crisis. It was a place for me to send my mother when she would call me <laughs> relentlessly of what's happening. I would just say, read the blog. And, you know, lo and behold, that created a readership of some, some sort, you know, in the first year. And it wasn't until a, a lawyer from Toronto emailed me on my site and said, you know, your history sounds really similar to mine, except that I'm eight years older than you, but we pretty much have gone through the same trajectory. Do you help with uh, career tra transition coaching. And I went, what's a coach? <laughs> I, I did. I literally didn't know what that was in 2012. Right. Yeah. And so that, but that, you know, being curious about what that is, Oh, someone found me helpful. I wonder if I could be more helpful. Right. And so that became that, that curiosity took, you know, flight for me where I was very honest with this lawyer. I wasn't thinking of coaching, to be honest. I don't have any credibility to coach in a sense of um, a piece of paper that tells me I'm a good coach. But what I can offer is experience. What I can offer is a, a second brain for me to help you do that thing, right? And I tested some of this by not charging my first client, you know, by charging less for the second client. And I beta tested with a number of clients before I even decided this should be uh, a primary business, yeah. right? Because I didn't want to spend money being certified and all these things until I knew I liked being a coach because mm -hmm. I was thinking, could I be a coach? Is it like a therapist? I'm way too blunt to be a therapist. So, you know, <laughs> what's that, what's that sweet spot for me that allowed me to coach and guide and mentor without this, you know, need to talk about trauma or the past, you know, what are those boundaries that made me feel ethical in what I'm, what I can do? with what I'm capable to do and what I won't do because I'm not there yet. So I didn't do business coaching, for example, back in the day, because I didn't, I didn't have a successful business that I felt was in a place that I felt good about coaching people on that. But I have been successful transitioning my career. I had been successful building a solo uh, consultancy business from that place. So this is the boundary of where I start and stop, right? And that allowed me to 
go confidently with that scope of work before I started building that body of work down the road, right? So that experimentation, that beta testing, the helping generously to see what the exchange looks like, that is really what helped me build Screw the Cubicle, right? Yeah. And I think uh, that notion has really stayed with me in how I guide others to do it as well, right? That's not so cookie cutter and not so you can do it. You can do anything, you know? It's not like, well, sure, you can do anything with deep work. We have to still work towards feeling confident. It just doesn't happen to us, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh, where I, I'm hearing this in every part of your story, this ability to add restraint to things, where does that come from? Oh, you know, I think as someone who has always been a type A personality perfectionist, you know, that was, a, there's a lot of learning there for me to where, you know, I still do. I, I'm still learning how to be that happy balance, you know, of going after things, you know, having that vision and 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 tenacity and drive to do things but not at the sacrifice of my health and well-being because that's never been the case for me in my 20s you know and so in my 30s uh it, it's really been important for me to strike a balance where there's sustainability in the way that i do things so that it's not like this crazy sprint towards something you know and then oh I'm exhausted for months and then I feel I can't pick myself back up and I have to have this yo-yo effect that I used to do getting sick, getting well again, getting sick, getting well again, you know, and that was the narrative in a way of, you know, how I got to success. Right. And so one of the things that I think really changed my approach in life is that when I started traveling more and moving, you know, when I was moving abroad and this is back in 2012, 2013, um, I read a lot on, on, on the principles of minimalism, mm -hmm. right. Which I loved because as someone who traveled with one backpack, right, one suitcase, I wasn't, a, I couldn't take on everything with me, right? I had to be very conscious of what was essential, what I really need to be comfortable living city to city, right? What do I really need in terms of even clothes and, you know, what, what I need day to day. Um, and that traveling plus the concept of minimalism really supported me in just being more awake, you know, in understanding what my life truly needs, what was noisy or extra things that I was sort of, you know, um, bombarding my life with. And that even included people, mm. right? Because when you travel, you yeah. want to meet everybody because you're lonely, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, but sometimes it's, again, about that curation of deepening a friendship with two to three people rather than having basic, you know, high-level friendships with 25 people, right? So, as I work on that in my personal life and felt more lighter in the way that I was living, I had to also use those principles for business, mm -hmm. you know, and because I was being a maximalist in business. I was doing all the things that people say you have to do as a coaching practice instead of what was right for me, for my lifestyle, for what, how much I want to work, how, how do I want to work with clients and so forth, right? And so that really supported me in having what I call horse blinders, you know, like if I can only do one thing this quarter, what's that one thing going to be? Because I could do that one thing really well, or I could try to do five things at 25%. Mm -hmm. Right. And when I traveled, I had to make these decisions because I couldn't work on all the projects when I was traveling. I had to kind of be very um, strict about completion of projects because I would have to move on and take a flight somewhere else or go somewhere without a lot of Wi-Fi access. So I have to finish and complete things rather than having them drag on 
mm-hmm. uh, for months to come. So like I'm I'm leaving for an upcoming trip to Vietnam, for example, where I'm going to take a, over a month off, right? And I have to decide what do I need to do before I leave and what's going to run without me while I'm gone, mm-hmm. right? That is doable and also essential to my my the bottom line of my goal. Right. And if I do that really well in the preparation for that, then I'm going to be able to leave for Vietnam knowing that's running in the background and I can still have a business when right. I come back. Right. But I don't work with a big team, for example. I work with freelancers and contractors on high level projects. I don't like managing people. So I don't, I'm a solopreneur. So that means I don't have an assistant answering my emails and things like that when I'm gone. So I have to set up systems yeah. that, you know, really pertain to the right things that I want to happen in my business. Um, and even what I offer is very minimal. I offer one thing, one thing you can do with me in two different formats. That's it. And that's allowed me to really grow that thing really mm-hmm. effectively rather than have eight products a year, which I did do back in the day and fell into a second horrible burnout in, you know, in 2015 in my business. So learning through some failures and also adapting this principle, as I said, of minimalism into the way I make choices in my life and business, that's really helped me to, you know, use the power of constraints, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, and with constraints, there's clarity because all of a sudden it's not all the things is you have to make a decision on one or two things. And then you think more deeply about what those things are. Mm. Wow. Just kind of taking that in because again, so many powerful lessons in what you just shared. And I think the one that I would love to touch on, if you don't mind, is there's often a, I've heard a lot of people talking about business as if it exists for other people, which to some degree, you wouldn't have a business if it weren't for other people. But that it's often said that other people come first before what a business actually means for your life. And I love that once you got clear about your life, then you got clear about your business and it started to make sense for how you could then help other people. That to me is an unbelievable lesson of clarity. Yeah. Thank you for picking that up because I think that's been a huge mission of mine in the last few years because it isn't easy, I think, to build something that feels small, Mm -hmm. right? Because small, we're in a society that celebrates bigger is better. I mean, who are the people featured on Forbes? It ain't right. no small business with a cabin by a lake somewhere. It's not that sexy, right? It's the to- Tony Robbins, it's the Richard Branson's, which who I love, right? I, I love to- uh, Richard Branson, but not everybody is a Richard Branson. Not everybody wants to be a Steve Jobs. And I think we only see those as an example of success. So when people want something different, they 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 feel bad about it. It's, oh, I'm playing small. You're not playing bigger. You know, they feel bad about having these more normal dreams that aren't big empires, for example. And I certainly fell into that trap myself because with social media and things that I'm reading, who I'm following, Mm -hmm. right, that penetrates into my reality of what I think is the right thing to do, right? And until I had this second health scare burnout in my business, which was in 2015, during my highest revenue year of Screw the Cubicle, which should be a moment of celebration, of like, whoa, I made it. I, you know, is I have a team, I'm paying people full time. I have all these amazing retreats and this and that. So many suite of offerings. It feels like I'm big time here, right? But I felt really, really disconnected from 
the heartbeat of my work, which is helping my clients and doing the deep work. And I couldn't do that because I was busy scaling, mm. trying to get myself out of the business almost, mm -hmm. you know, because this is what they teach you in right. business stuff for coaches is that, well, scale, scale everything, no longer work with people one-on-one -on -one because you have to scale. But I enjoyed working with people one-on-one. -on -one. I enjoyed problem solving. I enjoyed getting to know my clients for many years and I couldn't do that with that model, right? And so yeah. I had to really rethink about my version of success that was important to me. And also what was well, an important part, which is hard to get to is what is enough? What is enough money? What is enough of a business? What's enough of time, right? Because that's also a currency is time. It's not about working X hours and then having money. It's how much time do I want? What's enough for me to live so that I don't have these greedy eyes of like more, 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 because there's never enough if you sort of look at it that way, right? And I'm still figuring out what that enough is, but what I <laughs> right. do know and what's enough changes too, right? If you have children and there's other priorities you want to, um, you know, prioritize, right? Um, but I think as I thought about an ideal schedule, ideal day, ideal year, right? I started to realize, you know, um, I want to be a small business. I like being a solopreneur. I like having flexibility that I don't have to tell staff I'm leaving for a month, for example, and make sure they have a job to do, right? right? I like working on projects with people rather than full-time work all year round, right? So, even the style of working based on my personality type, based on the way that I offer value, you know, am I someone that goes deep or am I someone that likes to teach on a high level to a bunch of people, right? Knowing where those boundaries are for my work helped me to also define what I want to offer and how I want to offer that and the format of delivery that I want to offer my services to earn an income, right? Yeah. So being very detailed about all those little things, I think that's really helped me to have more more alignment in where how my business operates every year and how does that give back to me so that i can have the life that i want personally as well mm -hmm. oh i love that was there any conflict internally as this was unfolding or is it more when conflict is present you almost pay more attention to what's going on so that you can adjust i think at the beginning it's more reactive you know that was more normal because again don't know what you don't know until it happens and so <laughs> When um, when conflict did, did arise, I think I took a step back, right? That's that's what, you know, taking a sabbatical the first time I had that burden corporate and then taking a second sabbatical, I didn't work in my business for about four months when I had that 2015 burnout. Um, all these lessons have taught me that taking a necessary pause from the problem is important because we tend to want to throw the kitchen sink at something that feels right. horrible, right? And so as a perfectionist, that was a, uh, still something I have to like grapple with and allow myself to do willingly uh, because of the, my default behaviors, I want to fix the problem immediately. But I always know that when it comes in that sort of anxiety-driven, panic-driven mode, nothing good can come from that. You know, it's, <laughs> it's sort of like you're just not in the right mindset and mental state of mind to do that. And so being able to take a break from it allows me to have some spaciousness between the problem and myself and perhaps be able to think more clearly. So making those pauses happen, taking short sabbaticals when these problems happen uh, and, and not going full force usually helps me clarify what's the right next step to do. Mm -hmm. um, and then nowadays, you know, I, I, I think and I hope that I'm a lot more proactive 
rather than reactive to circumstances. But I do have every quarter, for example, I, I take a what I call a thinking retreat. So I go away for a weekend or a few days and think about my business, think about where how things are going and allow myself to make changes from what I learned in the last quarter and what do I want to put to bed for the next quarter? What do I no longer want to do? Maybe I, I want to change course, like allowing myself to do these things before they sort of run on for another nine months. You yeah. know, because again, that can happen with autopilot. You just keep going, keep going and going after the same goals. But maybe if you took a bit of breather to look at whether, is this where I still want to go? Right. You know, this felt exciting January of this <laughs> year because things are always more exciting in the beginning of the year. We right. want big things. We're inspired. But maybe as we did them by Q2, Q3, things may not be panning out or I did it and it no longer feels good. You know, it's an opportunity for me to say, that's okay. No need to shame myself in making the wrong decision. What is clarified for me is that I, that's not working, that, that will not work for me. And that's great. One off the books so I can move on to something closer to what I'm actually looking for. Right. Mm -hmm. So having more of these quarterly or for some people might be weekly, might be monthly. even for me, every three months, again, 90 days seems to be the sweet spot number mm -hmm. um, that really helps me to make more conscious decisions more often rather than waiting till the end of the year to do my New Year's resolutions or whatever we do. Uh, by that point, it might be too late. Or by that point, I might have already been, you know, really going after something that isn't feeling good and wasted time feeling that way. Mm. Mm. So as you're working with people, what are some of the usual roadblocks that they get in their way that prevents them from doing the things that they want to do? I think the first thing is around their identity. You know, I work a lot primarily with mid-career professionals. So they've done the, the, the years, right? The hard knocks of all the things that they've got to do to get where they, they, they are. And so they have a security of a job. They have a status, right? They have um, people know them for the reputation of being the doctor in the family lawyer in this, you know, uh, community. And when they decide or feel like they want to decide to change course, it's not just as simple and black and white as changing a vocation. It's attached to all these stories that make them feel respected mm -hmm. in their family, to make them feel dependent on things that I felt, you know, uh, sometimes some shame, guilt of changing careers when you're, you know, a lot of my clients are people of color, people who are immigrants. So they Think about, God, my mother sacrificed all this for me to have an opportunity and I'm going to flush it down the toilet. That comes with, right, some of that, the burdens we take on of other people's identity for us too, right? So usually that's a big obstacle of rewriting that narrative, right, of having to rewrite that narrative or see that they're actually not throwing the baby out of the bathwater. <laughs> they're not saying, I'm, you know, my entire degree or master's or whatever is gone, Right. My my whole approach is more about repurposing, reinventing, not throwing things out, actually allowing your body of work to expand, that everything you've done in the past has meaning and reason to exist. And what we have to get better at is being more creative, more curious to how we can use those tools, you know, instead of calling yourself a doctor, because that feels really limiting. I can only work in a hospital. I can work, only work in the clinic. I can only work in this area of an industry, right? But what I like to do is really break down what does what do you do as a doctor? What what are the actual tools and approaches and perspectives and philosophies 
that comes with these ingredients you have by being a doctor. So that when you look at all these individual skills as individual skills, rather than a title of a job that Mm -hmm. tells you nothing, right? Then we can start to see how do we reutilize some of these tools towards a different purpose, towards serving a different marketplace, towards solving a different problem, right? Now, all of a sudden, that can bring fresh feeling to your skills because you've only done it one way for 20 years, okay? (laughs) And so if we can see a bigger reality outside of what you think you know, then all of a sudden, it won't feel that you have been wasting 20 years. It's now about, right, I get to decide Mm-hmm. How I want to take these skills to the next chapter of my work that's going to feel more meaningful, going to feel more purposeful, or towards a cause that I really believe in now that I know what I know about the medical industry, for example, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so that's, I think, um, the biggest work that I do to get people unstuck from, mm-hmm. is this the thing I'm meant to do, right? Um, because also people think about it, again, very permanently. I have to choose this one thing and I die with it. It's like, you know. It got, it's got to be my purpose. You know, that's too big of a word. Even passion. I don't like using that word. It's too, you know, it, it makes people feel like I have to get it right. Yeah. You know, so I like to use words like what's what's your deep interest right now? Mm. You know, what's the right for right now business? Doesn't have to be right for forever. It's just right for right now. What is going to encompass your skills, your deep interest and the impact that you want to make? And then we go there and allow that to evolve as we go. But if we were looking for the perfect idea, it's just never going to happen. Right. And you'll be here forever. You know, (laughs) so that's the part that I try to work on with people to get them to that next inch of an opportunity rather than too big of a leap that gets them too scared to take that leap. So I'm very sustainable in my steps everyone's different in how they take a risk, you know, and uh, make those risks. And I think, you know, that's important for me to honor, right, and acknowledge for uh, everyone else instead of giving them a blueprint of what I've done or what other people have done. Right. That's, to me, the the more genuine work that I have to do. Oh, I love that. Thank you for diving in so deep and sharing all of that, because I think when we hear coach, oftentimes we think, oh, they're going to have some trademarked framework that is going to, yeah. you know, make everything easier to attain. Yeah. I mean, that's sellable, isn't it? It's very marketable to say, uh, swipe my five step to success, <laughs> you know, blueprint and get rich in six months. I mean, it's right. a great Facebook ad. Yeah. It gets a lot of clicks, right? Uh, but I also think it can very much hurt people's confidence because if someone believes in that, you know, as the old saying goes, if it's too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. Uh, but when you're in desperate mode, when you're in a feeling of exhaustion and you hate your life or whatever is the feeling of you want change to happen, you know, it's very easy for those people to fall into the trap of, oh, there's this saving grace that can take me out of this depression and dark place. And so we want to believe those things. But I think that can be quite hurtful, you know, to the community, because if if they don't get to those high level goals of, you know, six figures in six months or that blueprint didn't work for them, for example, they believe they're not meant to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, rather than that, they have their own blueprint yeah. rather than, you know, they have their own approach and that they're an individual. You know, it's very easy. We can take the corporate mentality into business where we follow like sheep again to whatever else someone else is doing out there. I mean, I did it. You know, I thought I escaped corporate, but no, I actually did bring in still the same practices of blindly following a trend, following mm-hmm. a best practice of what a better coach than me told me. Right. Um, And I think 
it's important for me anyway, as a coach to feel ethical and moral in the way I do something that it's not, it doesn't come from this evangelical thing of like, I did this and it's amazing and anyone can do it and you should just copy that. Because then that's me not doing my job. A coach is someone that guides someone on their goals, on their way of doing something. And what fears could lie ahead, that's not my fears, but I have to acknowledge those things so that that support is tailored to the, the way that person can get to that next level of goals in a way that feels safe, mm-hmm. right? In a way that feels right for them, mm-hmm. right? And that's really my job. I'm not an influencer. I'm not a... I don't know what other title there is because that can be right. That's a fine line you can get into being an influencer or some sort of, you know, brand that is just inspirational, but it doesn't actually encourage the deep work that's required for change. And I'm interested in the deep work. It takes longer. It's not as sexy to sell sometimes, but it is right. Uh, It is, it is the work that I think is honest and, and most authentic. Yeah. I think that's, one of the hardest things to really stomach is how hard and how deep the work is. Cause there's a lot of, of stories that need to be unearthed. They need to be worked on. They need to be, uh, it's, it's, it's so easy to say, just, just put it aside when in reality, you've been living that story for 20 years and you're like, I can't just put it aside. Um, mm. so I'm grateful that, that you're someone who, wants to guide people to the other side of that story as opposed to just ignoring it. Yeah. I think it's been important for me to also be very trauma-informed as a coach, right? As much as I don't want to be a therapist, right? I do need to, because I'm working with people, I'm working with history, I'm working with, it's not just about uh, rah, 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 and, you know, inspirational things moving forward. And that's been an important change for me uh, to get guidance on, you know, with uh, counselors and therapists, because that informs my job as well in how I um, encourage people and when I push and when I let them stay and so forth, you know, because everyone's going to be really different um, and not to re-traumatize my clients as well, because that's something sometimes we do as coaches unconsciously because we just really want them to get somewhere and it's about cheerleading them, but it's not always in that state every single time. So knowing how to balance when someone's having a trauma reaction, which we all have trauma, big T trauma, little T trauma, it comes with every story. And knowing that, you know, how to how to work with that as a coach, I think that's been a really important part of um, the growth of my coaching practice as well. You know, um, what I do and don't do on a session that I might have been unconscious about back in the day. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Lydia, I, I I don't know quite how to ask this question, so I'm just going to ask it. What does your mom think of what you do now 10 years later? Well, she finally visited me two years ago. It took her about seven years to visit me. And I didn't actually think she would get on my motorbike. Like I didn't think she would do any of the things she did. But it's, she's retired now. You know, she's been retired for a few years. And I think that's really changed her in terms of um, having time to really have conversations with me, think about things, not worry about the mortgage and all the things that she used to be very worried about. But I think she's uh, finally getting to a point where um, she's seen the reality of why the life I live. She doesn't, we don't agree on it. Like she would not, that's not something she would like to do herself. (laughs) But 
I think her coming into my world and spending, you know, four weeks with me in Bali, for example, you know, it's helped her to see why my version of happiness really works for me. And that, and that's something she can be very proud of and that she's still, you know, someone that helped me get there by giving me a bigger opportunity, you know, moving from Malaysia to Canada, more education, more opportunities that supported me in having my own mind and my own, um, you know, capability to create that future, which wasn't in the cards for her. You know, we grew up very poor. She didn't have an education. She had to really work hard to get where she got to be. Um, but I think she's starting to see that that story is her story. And I have a different one. And I get to live out this narrative differently as well. You know, and so um, I think at this point, she's very proud of and she respects the decisions that I make, even though we don't agree on lots of things. But there's a mutual respect of like, if it makes you happy, if you are happier as a person, you're that that's the right decision for you. Well, as we wrap up our time together, what's one thing you want listeners to take away from our conversation apart from moving to Bali? Yeah, I mean, the tropics is kind of nice for everyone's mental health, I think. Um, you know, I think based on what we talked about today, um, I think a big theme here is about uh, feeding your curiosity through experimentations and internships. You know, what does, how would you want to define an internship if you've been kind of having an idea in the back burner about either a lifestyle change or a career change? What's a, what's a smaller step? than literally just making the big jump, right? So an example of a lifestyle change is let's say you, you're like, oh, you know what, Bali sounds great. Uh, might want to do that. But instead of actually just moving to Bali, <laughs> right? Could there be a smaller experiment? Could you take your next holiday in Mexico, you know, closer by and go and find someone who is a digital person in that place and talk to them? Could you live in an expat community for a month you know, and see what that feels like and try that on for size before you, you know, sell the house and <laughs> put the kids into international school or whatever is the, you know, more aggressive choice, right? Um, there's always a smaller choice. There's always a safer experiment, I think, that allows us to get closer to the goal. So, you know, I, I would hope that people walk away with this concept of internship, that it can be something they activate without feeling that they have to give up everything they know for change, that change can be sustainable. Change can be small. Mm. You know, it doesn't have to be a huge, courageous, bold move that <laughs> you can have to, you know, that, uh, that is too big to digest. Yeah. You know, let's take smaller steps. Let's take tinier digestible steps so that our courage and bravery can be nurtured and built slowly rather than right. Thinking that we have to get there. right. Love it. Well, final question for you, Lydia. Is there a book, podcast, or resource currently blowing your mind right now? Mm, God, the the pod, my number one podcast that is religious for me every day is called the Ten Percent Happier mm. uh, Podcast. I don't know if you've heard of them, but I haven't. No. Um, it is one of the best because it's by uh, an ex uh, journalist and reporter. I think he used to work for ABC News, Dan Harris, um, and he had a mental breakdown on camera on air, wow. and that changed the um, trajectory of his career of like learning a lot about mindfulness. And um, he, he's kind of that the kind of you know meditator and mindfulness that's not he's really real about it. So he asks a lot of questions about what we're thinking about. Like I don't want to sit on a pillow for ten minutes. <laughs> like uh, what else? is there with mindfulness it's a very real conversation about you know all these spiritual 
language that can get lost in translation sometimes, or we can't, it's not our thing. We think it's too woo-woo, but he really makes it a very doable, practical thing that's very scientific and logical as well. And I love that balance of learning about spirituality and mindfulness, but in ways that are very practical and real to real life people. So that's one podcast I'm absolutely obsessed with. Um, a book that I really uh, loved reading, and that was, again, one of the books that changed my course during my sort of business burnout year, and a book I recommend a lot to um, my clients who are sort of starting a business for the first time, but wanting to be essential or um, mindful about what they're actually creating so that they're not building a Frankenstein of a business that they're going to want to kill three years later. Um, it's, it's a book called Essentialism by Greg McCowan. Mm -hmm. uh, and I go back to this book every year because it really applies a lot of the principles of minimalism in how we make decisions in things like business. Um, and what is what are those boundaries of uh, what we allow ourselves to effort in? You know, and how can it be more effortless hmm. if we were to not want to do all the things and be very mindful about what's right right now? You know, and so helping, I, I really get a lot from that book in helping me make decisions consciously more often rather than be on an autopilot and just letting things sort of run its course. I hope you took a ton of notes just like I did. And as this episode comes to an end, I want to ask two questions for you to ponder. The first one is this, who are the people in your life who will help you be brave? And two, what small experiment can you conduct today that will get you closer to what you want? As you reflect and put those questions into action, I hope you'll start seeing some change that you long desire in your life. Until next time, may creativity and curiosity fuel your life.